But wargaming is is like hitting the gym for our minds and as our, as our commanders, right? Is that you are gaining reps of thinking through crisis, thinking through dilemmas, thinking through risk. This is Purple Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Welcome back to another episode. Sebastian Bay is an adjunct assistant professor at the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown University. He teaches a graduate course, Basics of Wargaming, where student teams research and design educational wargames. He also serves as the co-chair of the Military Operations Research Society Wargaming Community of Practice. His professional work focuses on wargaming, emerging technologies, future warfighting concepts and strategy and doctrine for the U.S. Army and Marine Corps. Previously, he served six years in the Marine Corps infantry, leaving as a sergeant. He deployed to Iraq in 2009. His writings have been published in Foreign Policy, War on the Rocks, Strategy Bridge, Task and Purpose, The Diplomat, and Georgetown Security Studies Review. Sebastian, welcome to Preble Hall. Hey, I'm excited to be here. And Sebastian, welcome to your wife, Mira. Happy (laughs) to have you guys here, both of you, and also happy to have my co-host, Dr. Marcus Jones from the History Department, who has hosted uh, several episodes before, is going to be doing some more later this year. Marcus, welcome. Great to be here (laughs) and to have a chance to talk with Sebastian about so interesting a topic. This is uh, something that I've been looking forward to for a long time. And for the audience members, we're taping this in July of 2020. This is a project that we've been working on for close to a year. Marcus and I started talking about this. And we're really excited because we are officially announcing that the museum is going to be museum and the history department are going to be sponsoring the Naval History Wargaming Lab, and that will have several components. We are actually going to renovate our theater, which uh, some of you who have attended our our Shifu lectures here, we are no longer going to have uh, lectures in the theater. That is going to be specifically the Wargaming Lab, where the midshipmen. Naval Wargaming Society, the new ECA that was developed, uh, will have a home. So what we're trying to do is develop midshipmen and their understanding of wargaming so they can be better prepared for the fleet, for the Marine Corps. So Marcus and I have been working with that ECA, that extracurricular activity, these incredible young midshipmen who are excited about wargaming. And we are ecstatic about Sebastian Bay, who's going to be joining us as an adjunct, and the museum and the history department are going to be sponsoring Sebastian in the spring. And I should say, we've been working on this for a while. We were supposed to start all of this in, on March 28th. <laughs> we were going to have a weekend of wargaming, which is an additional component. So I've worked with the Navy Reserve and senior components there. So what we're going to do is we're going to have midshipmen take a course every semester as an elective on wargaming, specifically Navy history. We are also going to sponsor quarterly events with reserve officers and sailors, active duty here at the academy, and some civilians to really uh, integrate their understanding and provide them another another option as well. And then, of course, there's Sebastian who's going to be teaching this. Sebastian, uh, tell us, how did you get into wargaming? So, like many professional wargamers, I fell into wargaming by accident. Because wargaming is not a career that most people know about or exists that is common of no one is seven years old uh, saying, I want to grow up to be a wargamer and create board games for the DoD. Um, So actually, I came to wargaming quite accidentally, which is a common story in our field. I was actually in Iraq, in Kurdistan, after I graduated grad school, covering the, the Syrian refugee crisis, 
for Foreign Policy magazine uh, for my great mentor, Tom Ricks. And, <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I don't think this journalism thing is for me. Um, so I started applying to other jobs. One of the jobs was to be a, a war game designer for uh, Marine Corps Warfighting Lab McWill uh, Wargaming Division down in Quantico. I was like, you know what? I love the Marine Corps. You know what I mean? It sounds like a cool job. And I applied to it. They actually called me back while I was in Iraq still. And they're like, can you come in? I was like, well, I'm still in Kurdistan. So um, it's going to take me a little bit to get there. And so we set up the interview. And they essentially liked the fact that I wrote narratives and stories. I understood the Marine Corps. And I was a hobby gamer for all my life. And they're, and they're like, we can train you how to be a professional war gamer. And they did. And they, I found great mentors and great learning at McWill in the Wargaming Division, uh, which is headed by Colonel Barrett, and he's doing wonderful things down there right now. But that's how I got into so, it. So, Sebastian, what did you find at Marine Corps University when you got there? What, what kind of a program did they already have running? Um, how did you fit into it? So at McWill, so McWill work, uh, so McWill what is, is where- What is McWill is the Marine Corps- Warfighting or, Lab. War so fighting that lab. is the parent um, organization to the Wargaming Division where I belong to. Uh, MCU is sort of separate, but sort of connected uh, to Wargaming Lab, uh, to the Wargaming Division. So when I went to the Wargaming Division, it was you know mostly contractors, a lot of uniform services who were doing action officer stuff. And my time there um, was mostly focused on capabilities development, concept development, a lot of analytical gaming. Uh, we did about 10 to 11 a year, and we mainly supported McWill's larger mission of like advancing what the future of the Marine Corps would be. So they're really, you, you moved into a position down there that was focused on defining and exploring practical problems for the Marine Corps today. Oh um, yeah, absolutely. So yeah. when I was down there, EABO, which is like the marquee, Warfighting concept for the future for the Marine Corps was just in its nascency. Mm -hmm. uh, we were exploring that. We were looking at distributed logistics. We we're looking at all the sort of trends that are sort of more mature now, very early there in wargaming. Um, I learned a lot in terms of scenario design, how to be a game designer, um, what wargaming was. I read Peter Perla's uh, Art of the Wargaming for the first time when I was down there. Actually, my first week, my boss there um he gave me a reading list and he's like these are things you need to read to get smart on being on wargamer uh and that's what i did that's interesting and important because when when we think about wargaming in one of the two most important applied ways um we think of it as as a as a way of defining and addressing problems we also think of wargaming as a way of training and educating and your experience based both professionally on having uh, worked at Marine Corps University and now at RAND, but also as a classroom teacher of wargaming implies this, this ability to straddle that divide. You, you, you do both things and can speak to how they inform each other and maybe the value of one for the other. That's, that's a very interesting dynamic. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, wargaming more generally can be divided into two sort of schools of thought. One is education and training, and more one is analysis. Um, and depends on where you sit and what your organization focuses on. Um, for instance, analytical gaming is really about producing new knowledge, right? Yeah. And you treat your participants and your players as data, as expertise you're putting into the machine that is the war game, and you're trying to glean an insight or a new knowledge or um, new avenue of research or inquiry. Education flips that equation. Um, your, your players and your participants are the goal, right? And the war game is the tool, right? And you're not, you're not trying to 
produce new knowledge for the uh, for your students. You're trying to allow your students to have a what I call an intellectual sandbox for them to understand history, explore new ideas, be creative, to explore uh, or engage with history and with the concepts they're learning. And one of the great parts of wargaming is what we call experiential learning, is to live history, to be in the moment of to be whether you're you're wargaming, you're in the um, the Battle of Leyte Golf, or you know what I mean, the Iberian Campaign and the Napoleonic War, right? You're trying instead of looking and reading it from a book, right? You're placed in the constraints of the commander, and that's the great thing about yeah. educational wargaming. And personally, I love educational gaming more, uh, mainly because I love teaching, I love engaging with history and with students. I find that dynamic really interesting. Um, analytical gaming, because of uh, of its nature, can be a lot of it can be classified. So you can you know you can't share it with people as easily. But education, it's you know I mean you can go to anywhere and talk about people, and you can turn almost anything into educational opportunity if you try. Sebastian, as we sit here in the conference room of the museum on this incredible table that was given by the Emperor of Japan to uh, Commodore Matthew Perry in 1854, there's a game on the table that I brought out a few weeks ago. It's a football game called Pigskin. Was made by uh, it made in the 1930s, and it's the Tom Hamilton pigskin game, football game. And Tom Hamilton was a, a famous football player and later coach here at the Naval Academy. But what we see here is a board, some instructions, some pieces, some cards for people who are more familiar with board games. You know, family board game night than a war game. Do the board games essentially have the same components and the same teaching ability as a war game that we might use? here at the Naval Academy. So we use the term wargaming to describe a very specific thing, and that is um, our abstraction or simulation of conflict that where human decision-making and consequence and that dynamic is examined. Uh, and, we, and the term goes back to the Prussians and the history of wargaming. Uh, you, you mainly use it as a training and education tool, but there's another term that a lot of people use who don't focus on sort of the military aspect of gaming. and. Gaming is used for many things, right? Uh, and they prefer either the term serious gaming or um, you know, experiential um, or experimental gaming, depending on where you are. But let's say, let's just stick to serious gaming. So serious gaming can look at um, humanitarian responses, pandemics, hospital responses. Um, so they can look at all sorts of things. And I've seen games, the commercial games about opening restaurants, um, stop markets, container, container is one of my favorite commercial games about something that's not wargaming, which is about uh, import, export, supply, and demand. And uh, it's fantastic for young children to learn sort of basic economic stuff. Um, so gaming can be applied to do a lot mm -hmm. of things and to be used as learning tools for a lot of things. Um, but to answer your question about what are the components of wargaming versus commercial gaming, the basis are relatively the same, which is one is that you're simulating some kind of event or phenomenon. Right. For us, for in wargaming, we focus on conflict, combat, military strategy. For other board games, you can do it for all sorts of things, right? as we discussed. Uh, another portion of the element of a game that's really important is human decision-making. And this is the key difference between a model and simulation uh, and a war game. A model and simulation, you just crunch the numbers and the computer is doing all the thinking for you and it spits out a bunch of probabilistic results. Uh, in war games, you have to make the choice. So if me and Marcus are playing a game, even if it's pigskin, right? Our decisions are the dynamic, right? The game focuses on my decision to move my left tackle this way and his uh, his um, um, linebacker one direction. 
That dynamic is what's important in wargaming. And for that to happen, a really important part of a war game is what we call adjudication systems. So it essentially says, what happens when my left tackle comes off the line and his linebacker hits me in the face, right? How do we adjudicate or decide what happens in that engagement? And that's no different in a war game. What happens if my TLAM hits your, your, your cruiser? How do we adjudicate that response, right? Um, but the real key component is decision-making, a framework, and some kind of simulated model that allows you to obey certain rules, right? So that's really the game system, the adjudication, and the and the people, the thinking minds playing the game. And that's true in commercial games or other or, or educational or analytical games. Now, how those three types of games differ is what you focus on, right? Uh, commercial games like Pigskin or any game you buy off the shelf, let's say Scythe or any of the uh, Main Street board games, is that they favor what we call playability and entertainment. So they make compromises, uh, right, um, in, their, in their game design. So they might not be historically accurate or not as rigorous or they'll, or they'll leave certain aspects of, uh, of a certain conflict out or a certain uh, problem set, right? Educational games will also make similar compromises because one of the great constraints of educational gaming is, as, any, as Marcus will tell you, is that your classroom time is limited your number of class engagements is limited. So giving up even one class to do a, a, a war game is hard uh, and, and, and it takes a lot of effort uh, on the instructor uh, and on the program of instruction. So you have to be careful. This, this was stuff. a very dismaying lesson from, from my, <laughs> my forays into classroom war gaming, serious classroom war gaming over the past year. Uh, I ran a few experiments. And we're gonna be expanding this because yeah. there are now several professors. That, so this is a question yeah. to both of you. What's the benefit of integrating these war games with the normal course curriculum? So I will steal one of Jim Lacey's stories that he wrote about in War on the Rocks. And Jim Lacey, for, for those who don't know, he's a fantastic advocate uh, for educational war gaming down at MCU at uh, McWar. And uh, he's, he's such a great character. Um, he loves Thucydides. He loves. He, does, he doesn't like to pronounce Thucydides. I've been, <laughs> Jim and I went through the same PhD program, so <laughs> so it's actually related, right? So he wrote he wrote this article on War on the Rocks about the Peloponnesian War and how his students will always say the Syracuse campaign is terrible. You shouldn't have done it. It's a strategic mistake. And he always and in, in the same article he'll say most of his students when they played the war game Pericles, I forget what other mm -hmm. game or the Peloponnesian mm -hmm. War, whatever game he uses to have them go through it. And he says, most of the times they invade Syracuse. And they this, become obsessed with wheat. And they become <laughs> obsessed with it, right? And one of the great things about that game is that it's for, as, as that story sort of demonstrates is that it's easy to play Monday night quarterback, right? Um, from a distance, right? Mm -hmm. To be like, oh, obviously that's a silly mistake from, you know what I mean, uh, thousands of years later. But when you're in the moment, and you're stuck with the same constraints and the same compellence, right? You change your calculus and you're able to see their time and their experiences and their decision space from sort of the same sort of ground level uh, perspective. You get to walk in their shoes a little bit in Wargaming. And that's what the great thing about Wargaming is, is that experiential learning of being like, you know what? I do need wheat. Wheat is so important to me in, on the Athenian side. So I'm willing to take this huge risk, right? I, I think that I would probably, com is this a word? Complexify? Complexify my normalcy. You're the Warren Harding. Maybe in my response. You're the Warren Harding of history department. The Warren Harding of history. <laughs> Dubious distinction. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll 
put it as categorically as possible when I say that in my limited experience using serious war games in the classroom, I've not found a better way to add um, texture and, and detail to the student's learning experience, and I've certainly not found a better way to get them to identify strongly with the internal dynamics and decision-making space of historical actors. Uh, nothing else has worked quite as well as, as wargaming. It's one thing to stand in front of a class for two or three periods and to talk and try to elicit conversation from them about things how all of the different theaters of war and the interaction between land and sea operations combined in the War of 1812 to yield outcomes and to track those outcomes and their consequences through time. It's another, and nearly as effective, to put a game in front of them and in the course of a very quick 15 to 20 minute introduction and moving things around, realize that they see suddenly how these different components of that problem fit together and to appreciate the limitations of information and the constraints of time and resources in the decision-making of actors at the time. As an historian, I would be remiss, however, if I didn't, didn't condition that by admitting that it's a mistake to assume that you've <coughs> captured what that mm -hmm. decision space for historical actors must actually have been like. And I try to caution them against seeing the war game and the dynamics built into it artificial or commercially imposed, that is to say, ones that I sort of define in the classroom or those which can be brought in by whatever commercial game is designed for entertainment. I mean, it, games designed for entertainment have to be considered in those terms to, to bring them in there. And so now that you've played the game and you've figured out how to play the game well, you understand what history was like. We, we, I, I'm always at pains to caution them against that leap. That said, uh, nothing animates them quite as much and makes them more interested in discovering more about history and in appreciating the limitations of their own decision-making, potentially, as actors, mm -hmm. than a war game. It's the single most powerful tool I've ever come across in the classroom for these purposes. Sebastian, with regard to naval history, naval wargaming or just wargaming in general, why does it seem like there's there's something different in the air right now? Because you've you've had the Naval War College, which has been doing naval history wargaming for for some time now, but uh, it seems at, in the past few years it's really expanded. I know a lot of the events that I've attended, whether as a reservist or or otherwise in some other uh, venues, they're talking about it more. Uh, the Naval Academy Museum is now part of the Education Wargaming Cooperative, which you established. And so why don't you tell us about that, and then also why you think it, the thought of wargaming has been expanding within DOD in recent years. The answer to that has to be obvious. It's because <laughs> Sebastian. of Sebastian. I mean, it's, it no, coincides with it. your own involvement more intensively uh, in these projects. Sebastian is the only answer for the no, remainder uh, of the podcast. If I had to name one person real quickly that really spurred this on is probably Deputy Work and his famous memo that all wargamers are like, this is the moment that we became important again, right? Um, 
but sort of to cycle back to the Educational Wargaming Cooperative. Um, so EWC is an organization I started with a couple other people, um, mainly because when I was starting my, my class at Georgetown, and they asked, uh, Georgetown was like, oh, we want you to start a class. Can you put a syllabus together? And having never taught a class before, I was like, um, sure. Right? And of course, I immediately called up my mentors like James Starrett of Command General Staff College uh, at Leavenworth, uh, Ed McGrady, Mike Arnberg, who are all you know, experienced uh, hands at wargaming and teaching. And I was blessed to have their experience and leverage their um, they took my syllabus and they're like, that's useless, that's good, you're being too ambitious, too many pages, and they gave me a lot of feedback. And, they're like, and I was like, okay, you know, what, what games do you think we sh I should use? I like this game, and they're like, that's a good game or that's a bad game. Um, so they gave me a lot of wisdom and insight that I would have to have learned the hard way, which I still did a little bit. Um, but that, and after you know, my first semester, I learned, you know what? This is a hard barrier to overcome if you're trying to bring board gaming to a university. Um, so the EWC was created to gather that knowledge, that brain trust. Uh, so if someone else at you're in the like Marcus wants to be able to be like, you know what, I want to start a board gaming program at Annapolis. How do I get that? Where are the resources? Who or who can I talk to? And if you're not plugged in in the board gaming community, like I was blessed to be at the time, there's no one to go to. So I want to create an organization. So if someone at the University of Chicago or at the Naval War College um, or anywhere else wants to be like, you know what, I want to be plugged in and bring wargaming. And maybe you don't have to be a wargame designer like I teach a wargame design course, but maybe you're just a history uh, professor at Georgia or the University of Florida and you want, you know, I want to use a game. How, who, yeah. who can I talk to? Mm -hmm. yeah, there's a I place wanted, to turn. Yeah. I want uh, EWC to be one, a resource for those kinds of people. Another one was to bring all these siloed uh, efforts that are doing amazing things, these islands of excellence, and bring us together um, as a forum. So, um, one, and that was inspired by my own experience at uh, Georgetown. So, the Brew Kulak Center, which is also uh, relatively new, is doing fantastic things in PME education uh, through the MCU, and they're doing fantastic experimentation and with a PME, and they're trying to bring wargaming so wholeheartedly to the Marine Corps, uh, especially in training and education. And one of the great synergies that happened was actually in January before COVID was I had a bunch of students who created their new uh, original board games in my class, and they wanted educational board games. I was like, perfect. Um, so I was like, I told um, Major Cooper and Major Brown, who are the action officers down there, I was like, I'll bring my students, I'll run our games, our students will run their games for your faculty, your staff, your students. My students will get a chance to run their games and get, you know what I mean, essentially more, more reps at it. Uh, the, the, the faculty and staff will get a chance to play these games on the Peloponnesian War, the Three Kingdoms in China, modern day Kashmir. Um, and uh, the Byzantine reconquest of Rome. And it was such a fantastic event. You saw these majors and lieutenant colonels engaging with my young 25 year old grad students and asking, why did you do this? Why did you do that? Um, it was fantastic. And, and that's a really important component of the way you're teaching wargaming there at Georgetown and how you'll be doing it with us here at the museum and, and history department at the academy is that you have the students design the courses. It's not just that they're playing commercially available or DOD available war games, they, are re they really have to think about this. Oh yeah, absolutely. So my syllabus is filled with warnings, <laughs> uh, mainly because the way the class is structured, it is 
atypical in every sense of the word to any kind of college or even grass program you go through. So every grad program or every grad student is sort of used to writing papers, taking exams. Those are simple things that they, by the time they reach grad school, they have mastered, right? Read lots of books and articles, take an exam, write a paper, right? Those are three key skills they have. But my class has none of those things. Um, so in the beginning, um, they have to read a lot about wargaming, but they also have to do a lot of the traditional research um, they're used to in the sense of they're doing the Battle of Okinawa, they have to look at the order of battle, what regiments and divisions were there, what the Japanese had, and you look at maps, and those are within their wheelhouse. And then by week four, week five, they are now in new territory, yeah. where they are now exercising in groups of usually two or three, uh, creativity in the sense of now how do you convert that historical knowledge that you have researched in archives and articles and primary sources into a game system? What do you leave behind? What do you bring over? What do you emphasize? What do you, uh, um, and how do you make that engaging and uh, compelling and interesting and seamless? And, and that, that is a hard task. And, and useful. And it's at useful. At the same time, I mean, you're, you're talking about a process that involves not only considerable fidelity mm -hmm. to the history and the need for precision and accuracy in order to be compelling, but in a practical and applied way, and that's really what makes wargaming so uniquely valuable to my mind, engagement with complicated and complex problems, complicated in the sense of having lots of interconnected and interrelated parts, complex in the sense of those interrelated parts yielding indeterminate outcomes, unpredictable outcomes, and that I can't think of anything else that captures that interaction between real-world intentions and consequences and the landscape of history. Marcus, I want to go back to that, that comment you made about value, and especially here at the Naval Academy, because you and I have been working with these midshipmen, these rising youngsters who are heading up this new Naval Wargaming Society. Yeah, that we're going a to be remarkable with. pair of plebes we've, we've Tell been us fortunate what, to find. Yeah, I mean, I am, I am shocked. I shouldn't say I'm shocked because I've been working with midshipmen enough to know these midshipmen are incredibly creative across the board. Oh, yeah. But what, what value do you They're always diamonds think? in the rough, too. Yeah, that's true. So are we. <laughs> Marcus, what is the value of bringing wargaming to the Naval Academy to midshipmen who are 18 to 22, 23 years old? And what value can they bring to our understanding to Sebastian and everybody else in DOD? Um, I'm not going to be able to answer that very well until I've had a chance to observe what comes out of this initiative over the next couple of three years, maybe maybe even more significantly over the long term. Prospectively, I, I, I see it in, in a twofold sense, and a good answer in a twofold sense right now. The, 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 the first element to that would be those things I've already referenced, the immense value that wargaming brings to the classroom experience of learning and making sense of history. Um, there are probably much better ways to do that. I, I'm in a department here with extraordinarily talented teachers, all of whom teach better than I do, and probably have a terrific capacity to do this in ways that I, I still haven't been able to figure out after 15 years. But I've, I, I've found wargaming to be one of the most powerful things I've ever Done And again, I've only done it on a, a rather tentative and experimental level up to this point. So th there's also those critical intellectual skills of understanding the interrelationships between 
intentions, outcomes, uh, determinacy and contingency in history, uh, the complicated and complex interrelatedness of, of reality with which we're forced to deal as historical actors, and how those, those realities yield outcomes that are desired or, or foreseen or not. But in another broader sense, uh, I would point to the, the, the enormous value that this could have for our students down the road uh, to steal a little bit of Sebastian's thunder about the history of wargaming maybe and the directions or the value it has uh, in the, uh, the, the, the joint analysis process today or however you want to characterize it. Our midshipmen are graduating right now into a world characterized increasingly by great power competition. If you, if you look at the history of wargaming out over the past century or so, it, it tends to move in a kind of evol evolutionary S-curve way. You know, it, it, there, there are periods of time in which wargaming is in vogue, in which emphasis is placed upon it, in which it, it has important connections to decision-making and maybe program requirement definition and capabilities development in the DOD. And there are times in, in the history over the past hundred years when that hasn't been true. And we're clearly, I mean, Bob work is no longer a, a, a maybe the driving force of the DOD behind this, but uh, we're clearly in a period in which it's undergoing a, 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 a renaissance. It may not achieve the same heights of importance that it did in the 1930s, when you can make the case, it, the case has been made, the case has also been doubted that it was a crucial element in the Navy's readiness for the war against Japan and the Pacific in particular. Um, in World War II, if not the War of the Atlantic, I mean, one always begs the question of why that wasn't gamed out hmm. as interestingly and as accurately and in ways that yielded better outcomes between 41 and 45. Hmm. Maybe we'll get that right this time. Um, it was clearly a very important part of the process in the 1950s at the institution where Sebastian is today at RAND. Uh, Wargaming at RAND was an enormously influential, I mean, that's the origins of modern DOD Wargaming. If you ask me, in my naivete, where it comes, it's clearly at RAND, and it's where the most important work is probably still done today. Um, it was important in the 80s for figuring out how the new airland battle concepts and a war against the Soviets in Central Europe would work out. It fell into troughs between those periods in which wargaming didn't seem to factor importantly into the way people saw problems being defined and, and addressed. In a new era of great power rivalry today, wargaming is, is clearly on people's radar. And what seems clear and what I'm told a lot of the discourse to which I, I have access indicates that officers today could and should be more cognizant of how these kinds of problems are defined, addressed, and, and the mechanics whereby wargaming does that. And our midshipmen, I don't think, are getting a lot of that. I mean, we, we should be graduating kids because this is a different, a different battery of intellectual skills than can be developed well in any other way. And the same kinds of people who do exceptionally well in wargaming aren't necessarily the same kinds of people who show themselves to be excellent in lots of the other ways we define and measure. We should be doing this too. And hopefully we're going to produce students who in 15, 20, 25 years are better decision makers, um, better able to frame questions and answers, better able to tackle the complex process of analysis 
uh, because of the efforts we make at this point now. Sebastian, do you see a difference in, generationally? You've worked with people who are students from Georgetown. You've worked in these war games with people who are 06s, colonels, cap, Navy captains, et cetera. In, is there a difference in how they approach these war games? I would like to say yes, but I think it's more of a personal mindset um, and less about a generation thing. Um, like Colonel Barrett um, out, out of the Wargaming Division at Quantico, he is one of the most intellectually curious, open-minded, sharp O6s I've ever met. Uh, another one is uh, Colonel Sean Day out of Marfort Res. He is pushing for Wargaming in the, in the reserves. Uh, he is also incredibly intelligent, articulate, and open-minded. Um, and the same thing with my students. Do you have ones who take it to like fish like water and other ones who are resistant, right? Uh, because they see little value in it. And I think that's across generations. I think the real value to exposing students early, whether it be Georgetown students or midshipmen, is that one is not only do you engage in that experiential learning about history, but you get what I call mental reps at hard, wicked problems. Um, so the same way my former uh, platoon commander and platoon sergeant used to make us do TDGs, tactical decision games, because he, said, he used to say to us, the first time you encounter a wicked problem shouldn't be the first time you had to solve it for real, right? When real people's lives are on the line, right? And I use the same, I still, and it still sticks with me, um, to the point that I still use tactical decision games in my, in my course. Uh, and a perfect example is one of the first basic ones is that you're a squad leader, one of your teams has, was supposed to go on recon and you lost radio contact with it. You don't know what it is, but now you're getting engaged by enemy contact on your left, right? So what do you do, right? That's literally the scenario. You have two teams and a machine gun team with you, but you have lost one of your teams behind a hill, right? And, but you're receiving fire, what do you do? Right? It seems like a really simple tactical problem. You can go run after your, 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 your lost sheep of a, of a team or you can engage, and, but, then you have, but then you sort of left your guys right, out on the hill. Um, so what do you do? And you don't know and there's a lot of uncertainty. And I give this to my civilian students. Some, are, some have military background. They sort of excel at these things because they're sort of more used to it. But my civilian students, the first time they get these, they are literally shaking in their seats because I stress them out. I'm like, you have five minutes to read this thing and decide. And I'll, uh, and I'll distract them. I'll sort of heckle them a little bit um, to sort of ruffle the, their feathers a little bit. And Wargaming does the same thing. It gives them more mental reps at wicked problems over and over, and whether it be about uh, the Indo-Pacific or the Baltics or, or, or um, humanitarian crises in Africa, the idea is that you're getting more reps at different problems. And, and the thing is that the war game doesn't pretend to be, this is your scenario in the future. It's like, well, what can, if the scenario was this, what can you learn? So one day in the future, you can draw, the per, uh, you can draw lessons for not only your own experiences, but history, this is why we learn military history, right? And other history classes, but also on all these sort of moments of interactions between a thinking adversarial mind, right? Um, so my experiences learning from games can be imported to me as a commander and, and develop my critical mind. Uh, and that is like, it's like what Marcus says, it's a muscle you have to exercise. And, and this is the thing about the military, and I'm guilty of it when I was an NCO in much better shape than I am now. 
<laughs> was that we are so obsessed with PT, right? Wake up in the morning, run three three miles, wake up uh, and then do classes and do lunch and then do and hit the gym again. And we are so obsessed about it. But wargaming is, is like hitting the gym for our minds and as our, as our commanders, right? Is that you are getting rips of thinking through crisis, thinking through dilemmas, thinking through risk. And yes, these risks are simulated and, uh, and sort of uh, not really consequential beyond the board, right? But the idea is that if you lose your fleet in the Pacific on a board game, that's okay, you've learned from it, right? Why did you make these mistakes? You can have that introspection. After, if you do that in real life, you may not get a second chance, right? You may be sinking uh, below the waves on that one. Um, and you may have wished you had a couple more war game reps at that. Um, and the idea is the same thing is that, and the third sort of prong is sort of long-term is that if these midshipmen go on to continue to be uh, active and long members of our DOD community, they can bring it to their commands, to the fleet. Um, and my great master plan about using this uh, uh, educational wargaming is that um, that my students not only become designers, but they bring the idea of wargaming being useful for training, education, and discussion and analysis to other commands. So if yeah. one of my if one of our mids goes to uh, O and I or anywhere else or to the DoD or to the Sixth Fleet or wherever, that they may one day be like, "Hey guys, I have this great naval war game that I learned when I was at Annapolis. Let me use it to teach my uh, to teach my enlisted and my chiefs about it." maybe they can use it as a tool and that is my greatest desire right that they take this out like pollinators into the fleet that's a real benefit because now you have midshipmen who are going right to the fleet who have a baseline or at least some of them will have a baseline understanding of the components of wargaming and decision making as a segue one of your colleagues at rand yuna wong has talked about i think very memorably in a in a podcast i listened to not long ago about uh, the immense value of uh, increasing diversity in wargaming, um, participants, designers, and so forth, in um, making more valuable that educational process. Uh, have you had a chance to, to, in your classroom development at Georgetown, or in a more practical and applied sense, have you s seen that value? Have you seen initiatives underway to... Um, so first, Yuna Wong is one of my favorite war gamers and favorite people. Um, she seems like a very, very smart <laughs> super, and interesting lady. Super yeah, smart. we heard her speak at Rand, uh, at Rand uh, well, three or four months ago. No, no, it was more. January or February we were there, and she gave an incredibly it's impressive yeah. brief to us. Yeah, Yeah. so that's first off. And second is um, diversity in war gaming is, is problematic on many fronts. Uh, we have an insider joke in the wargame community that says like most wargamers are old white dudes um, and of a certain generation. And that's usually of the generation of what we call the Avalon, the SBI group, a generation who Micro grew up history, on. the yeah. things that I grew up on. Unfortunately, yeah, exactly, that's right? probably <laughs> me too. Those were the games I played. You know, Fury that's of right. the Norsemen. And yeah, right, so right. You're, and there's something yeah. wrong with that, but there was, there was no one, there was no pipeline behind them, right? So, and then now you have this sort of new wave of wargamers that are coming like Yuna Wong, like Becca Wasser, like Stacey Pettijohn, uh, among, and Ellie Bartels, who are you know, I mean, leading the way in so many different directions at different institutions. Uh, Nina Kohler is out of Naval War College, Jacqueline Schneider out of the Hoover Institute. Um, but beyond, beyond that, I think diversity can mean a lot of things, and I think we need all of those kinds of diversity in, in our community. One is diversity and also in terms of our rank. I always 
stress and worry. This is the thing that keeps me up at night as a, as a war gamer is, is that we are inverted pyramid, right? There are so many talented, great giants of our field. Um, and I go back to that Isaac Newton quote of like, I stand on the shoulders of giants. And I feel like that every day, right? In the sense that I stand on the shoulders of Ed McGrady, Peter Perlick, literally the guys who wrote the books on wargaming. And I interact with them and play games with them and uh, uh, have great discussions with them. But my worry that keeps me up at night, I'm like, what happens when Peter, when Ed, uh, when Yuna, when all these people, like Phil Sabin, right? He recently retired from Kings, right? Um, who wrote one of the key books in my class, Simulating War by Educational Wargaming, when they retire. What happens when they're like, I kicking up my boots and this is the end of it for me, guys. Who is there to pick up the, the baton? And that is what worries me. Because I look out and I'm like, there's not a lot of young young gamers, not, not a lot of us to catch the, the huge load that these guys have carried up the hill. Um, so that's one is that a generational diversity of like of that and I've written about this of the whole talent pipeline both in the civilian and military uh, pipeline is that because the current generation unlike my generation we had pong growing up you know essentially and a few other video games is it is it the introduction of this massive in, uh, video game influx into the current generation that provides or has this paucity of, uh, of board gamers or war, war yeah, gamers? probably other diversions. As the father of two teenagers <laughs> right now, I'll, I'll point out that, that my children, well, not just my children, I mean, teenagers today, I, I think are pulled, compellingly pulled, in different directions. They have different compelling things to do with their time. As a kid, I remember pulling out a board game and it being maybe the last resort available. <laughs> for moments of extreme boredom, but th those moments never come about anymore when one is plugged continually into social mm -hmm. media so. and has a phone in your pocket and so forth. And it may also have something to do with how their psychologies are developing. I mean, their attention spans are shorter. I've noticed it's hard to get kids to sit down and contemplate playing a game that's gonna take three or four hours. So mm -hmm. I would disagree in the sense that I don't think it's so much a generational you know, digital native sort of thing. It's provocatively much, speculative yeah, on my part. Yeah. It's more, I think it's more about the fact that there is no path. Like, let's say you want, let's say you are a hardcore board gamer hobbyist that is super into gaming, right? Right. You go to Annapolis where you, where you won't encounter war, professional war gaming until you're what, a lieutenant, uh, your commander, mm -hmm. right? Uh, or even later. Um, if seriously, that. If, if that, that. right? Yeah. If you get lucky, yeah. if you yeah. end up at the Pentagon or someplace yeah. else. Special kind of PME. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that is the problem, right? Is that I think if you gave midshipmen, like I was given the opportunity to be like, wow, this is a job. This is something I can do. I think that a lot of people are, will be interested and fascinated and want to delve into it. So my, a part of it is just letting a thousand flowers bloom sort of thing. Um, I think another portion of it is that if you see the commercial sector, commercial sector is growing in, in board games. That, that whole sector has received a whole boom of games in, in terms of types of games, uh, types of authors, um, designs, topics, right? right? It's, it's so fascinating. Like Spirit Island is a fast, fantastic game about, uh, you know what I mean? That I encourage people to look at Container, which I mentioned before, which is, you know what I mean? And I saw a game earlier this week that I've never played, but it's about running a hospital. I'm like, that's a fantastic game. <laughs> so interesting, right? I wonder if you right? if it would, the play of that game would be enhanced by watching the famous 
George C. Scott film, The Hospital, from, was that 1970? <laughs> Good grief, you know, Patty Shaevsky's black comedy about, about yeah. I'm sorry, that's a digression, but <laughs> when you said a board game about a hospital, that's precisely where my mind went. So I think there's a certain boom there. I think the hard part is getting people uh, a path forward. For instance, like even some, some of the brightest students in, in my course at Georgetown were graduate students who are going to graduate soon or have graduated. Um, it's hard for them to find the next step, right? And that's one of the reasons I created the Georgetown Wargaming Society. Uh, to allow them to give more chances, more bites at the apple of doing wargaming, so they can land at places like CNA, uh, the wargaming division uh, at Afwick, uh, because I'm trying to build them, build more ladders. Uh, I always tell people that it is not enough to not pull up the ladder behind you as you advance through your career. It is your responsibility, it is your duty to build more ladders for those who follow you, right? To give more access to people who are who think differently. Um, who are come from different communities, who have different experiences, uh, to, so you can they can add to what you have built. What potential for collaboration and connectivity between some of the the institutions within that initiative do you see? What are some of the ways in which they can feed off each other and enhance each other's efforts? So part of the education working co uh, cooperative is one of the things that I was adamant about is that we cannot make one just for the DoD PME institutions, right? Uh, not just for Naval War College or the Army War College, we had to get civilian institutions involved, right? And it's fascinating, fascinating and we had such great responses, right? We have English professors who are interested in, in, in talking with us. We have you know, Georgetown uh, obviously involved and we have, you know, we, uh, we had a student uh, contact us in Oxford who's trying to start his own wargaming society there. Right, so we have we have whole different levels. So we have James Theret and all these other places who are teaching different types of courses, courses that are leveraging games as tools. Teach uh, courses like my own uh, and uh, and Stacy Petterjohn, um, who are teaching design at different institutions. That she teaches at Hopkins, um, and then you have people who are students who are like, hey. Uh, I'm interested in getting gaming at my university. How did you guys do it? How, what are my resources? Who can I talk to? And I'll connect them to people and, and I'll be like, hey, talk to this professor who's nearby or, or, or let me connect you to someone else who's doing something similar. And, as the, as I, and I always tell people that uh, at EWC, I'm like the, uh, the switchboard operator. I'm like just connecting people into uh, different slots. And another great aspect about it is that we're gathering resources, right? So one of my first initiatives there is to gather people's syllabuses, right? And be like, hey, tell me, Marcus, what is on your syllabus? How do you teach gaming? How do you teach gaming? So all of us, can we can learn as educators, learn from each other. And I'm like, oh, wow. So these are, the, and other things like putting a list, uh, Excel matrix of together of different types of games we use for education. And some of the limitations I've, I've felt with it, like one of the games that I always use in my, in my class is Frederick by Rio Grande Games uh, about the Seven Years' War about Prussia. It's a fantastically simple, dynamic, and rich game. I can teach it, I can teach you how to play with it in 10, 15 minutes, easy, right? But it is such a fantastically rich game of the Seven Years' War. That would be a great War, classroom game, right? 10 or 15 minutes yeah. to learn. Yeah, and it's, yeah. it involves logistics, it does, it's not super tactical, right? And there's this fantastic cooperative slash competitive aspect about it. So <clears throat> if I'm the Prussians, I am fighting this, uh, the Russians, the Austrians, and the French, which, who are allied, so they can't fight each other, right? Let's say you are those players, right? But only one of you gets to win, right? So there's this fantastic coalition 
dynamic where if Russia is winning, the Austrians will lean back and allowing the Prussians to redeploy to beat back the Russians because the Austrians don't want the Russians to win. They want to win. So there's this competitive sort of, or the Austrians will block the Russian objectives. So, and so to deny that, but they're not fighting each other. And, you, and but the Prussians are stuck in the middle of this huge like four way fight. Which is essentially what happens in diplomacy because yeah. if you pick right. the, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, you never win. Right. I mean, you, yeah. you, this all is you can enough. do is play off of yeah. the Russians. This is a knot that Bismarck yeah. knew how to untie. <laughs> yeah. You can and, design a similar game just as you call it you know your Bismarck yeah <laughs> and I think that's the fantastic part of that game um, and I got uh, a bunch of my colleagues hooked on it and it's one of our go-to games um, and I think it is really fantastic to see people in a forum at like EWC to connect with each other talk about it and especially um, I want one of the things I want to do is connect civilian institutions like Georgetown, Georgia Tech, MIT, who will all have gaming programs of either commercial or sort of political science related alignment to connect, connect with the PME institutions like MCU, Naval War College, Army War College, I mean, uh, the Air University, because I, I saw something magical happen in January earlier this year when my students and the Krulak Center and MCU faculty got to together. I, I, you know, I mean, it's one of my favorite photos where you see a bunch of majors and lieutenant colonels engaging with my students, and they're over the map debating strategy and tactics and risk. And I'm like, this is this is this is the magic. Yeah, that was that's a magic terrific stuff, right? yeah, experience. And I and that's one of the things I want to do with the mids here is that um, I got uh, so you know, being a, a former marine, I I always there's a great uh, thing run by Damien um, who runs the Warfighting Society, which is essentially like a you're in a dead poet society for warfighters, right? Where they do these little seminars and they talk about tactics and strategy and operational art. Um, and I told them, and I was like, hey, let's get five of you guys to play us and uh, play a bunch of my students, five of them, in a war game. We'll, we'll make a little event of that. I'll order pizza and we'll do it. And, just, and one of the things I want them to do is I want the students to engage with the officers and I want the officers to engage with the students because in their careers, in the future, whether they work at DOD or at the services, they will work with other civilians. Yeah. And one of the get big things uh, my civilian counterparts always complains like they oh the DoD is so foreign they speak their own language I don't know what a MEF is what is a MU right but I want that I want that learning to happen way early yeah there's a civ mill element to all yeah. of this that is invaluable we have to make sure the midshipmen don't forget at any point that you were prior marine <laughs> it's going to be a very <laughs> the, the knife hands will be an obvious giveaway <laughs> no it's going to be really important because some of these students will be going to work for ngos who may work with the military at some point uh, or companies and now they have a better understanding of how the military operates um, where do your civilian students at georgetown uh take these experiences so where i mean some of my students have jobs already which is <laughs> Which I think like it's are, probably not unusual for a master's yeah, program. Yeah, and I, and I, I admire them the most because my class is not easy. It is, it is hard. I, I wish you hadn't said that. Yeah. Now <laughs> no scaring mid- away all the midshipmen uh, who are thinking zero. about <laughs> this. Great, thanks, Sebastian. Right? No, so it is Let me hard. Anything else? But I will give this caveat. So all my students will say your class is the hardest class I took, right? But it's also the most rewarding. One of my students came up to me after the semester and he goes. There were times during the semester I was pulling my hair out, right? Um, but he goes, no one, no one, so, but after their game, they build a cashmere game. He says, 
all my family and friends want me uh, want me to bring my game that I designed for your class to, for holidays and because they wanted to play my game. None of them, not even my parents, ever asked me to read a paper that I wrote for class. <laughs> right? Uh, the best midshipmen love those kinds of challenges. Yeah, I think it'll do very well here. That's and great. I think it is. It gives you a different experience, and also um, some 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 of the groups have been uh, approached by publishers, commercial publishers. Uh, I can't say who or what games. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of them have been approached because they saw the games or they were invited to our play test and they're like, this is a great game. We want to publish this. And you know what I mean? To be 24, 25 and have yeah. a commercial game under your belt, I think that's special. Even if you don't want to become a war gamer, that's just a cool thing to that have. That is special. Right? It would be terrific if, if out of the experience of teaching uh, this course in the, in, in the coming year, we developed a roster of games which would be useful for classroom instructors in naval history. That's one oh, of yeah. the objectives. Mm-hmm. You know, a shelf, a, 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 and particularly in the immediate years when the game designer, the midshipmen involved in doing this, would be in a position to come to the class and sh- walk them through the game. This is how this is how the game is played. This is some of the reasons why we made the choices we did. And let's reenact the uh, the uh, Union Riverine campaign and the Western. Western theater. And also, <laughs> one of the things I want them to do with this midshipman wargaming program here at the museum is I want them to be able to take those games, like have tangible things, not just wargaming knowledge, right? Because that's useful too. But I want them, one of the things I found with wargaming, both as a designer and as a player, is um, the best kind of uh, advocacy is just to play and design games. Right? And I want them to carry their games that they design about whatever campaign, the Iberian campaign, the convoy uh, uh, problem in the Mediterranean, right? I want them to take these games out into the fleet and be like, hey, you know what, let's get, uh, get, let's get a bunch of uh, us officers together in our junior grades and play my cool game that I have. You oh my I mean? God, the poor swoes, they'll never be able to play anything. If you've seen playing a game <laughs> in the wardroom, you are dead meat by the senior officers. Yeah, obviously <laughs> you don't have enough to do. We'll just need more pilots because you know they have plenty of time to do all sorts of things and play Halo 7 or whatever it is. Thinking through these problems, get to work. <laughs> or, or even or even the idea of just saying like, hey, you know, what I mean? you know how many uh, hip pocket po- classes I did as a sergeant on the five paragraph order, right? Um, and there's a limit to how much you can educate out in the field. And I was talking to a great Marine Corps officer literally over the weekend about how he has adapted diplomacy, the commercial game, to be more rigorous for his intelligence Marines, right? He says, obviously I can't play diplomacy with them or I, have, or I don't have access to classified games. So one of the things he did is that he adapted diplomacy for his purposes. So he goes, as as uh, Intel Marines and Intel officers, we were talking about IO and all these sort of capabilities. So what he would do is that he would assign reading to the game that they're, uh, so uh, if they're doing a civil war game, they will do, or war uh, diplomacy, they did Guns of August, right? So, so they would do some reading ahead. They'll play a turn on the game, on the board game. And what, what was, was brilliant was that he also added a sort of matrix gaming style to it. So they did a discussion base about their moves, right? So, uh, so they would play a turn every week. So, you know, I mean, these guys have real uh, full-time jobs on staffs and things. Um, so they would get together, you know, I mean, every week or so on a Tuesday or whatever, and play this game a turn. And they'll start talking about it. And then he said it was a, a great experience to watch these officers engage with the topic, right? And, and, and you can take that, and I'm like, 
you, I am like, write me a one pager about this and give me everything you have on it. And I'll put it on EWC's Google Drive because I want that to spread, right? I, I don't want it to just be stuck with that great idea and that one great shop. I want that to spread all over the Marine Corps and into the Navy and into the, into the Air Force. And then um, Jim Very Lacey. evangelical of you. Yeah, I, you know what I mean? I always tell them uh, educational wargaming is my little soapbox issue. It's like I am preaching to the masses on the corner yeah. of some street somewhere. It's like, bring gaming to your university, to your <laughs> command. Come here, come on. That's a very Free compelling, for all. Very compelling <laughs> sermon here, yeah. actually. Yeah. Um, so, that, so that's one of my things. And gathering those resources, I think, is fantastic. And, um, you know what I mean? Colonel Bear gave me Assassin's Mace, which I want to bring to Annapolis and have a bunch of mids play it, um, and along with some of my Georgetown students. Uh, and I'm all about it, that kind of collaboration uh, for my students to play the mids games and all those things. Sebastian, thanks so much. The work you're, you've been doing within DOD at Georgetown is really incredible. And I can't imagine what the world will look like in about 10 years once all of the, you know, the thousand flowers have been blooming. We'll see if we can build a game. Yeah. To- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Marcus, it's always good to see you. And, and thank you for all the work you've been doing in this. And I know we're all really excited at the museum for this new Wargaming Lab and for uh, this incredible collaboration. You know, museum and history department always work very closely together. And now to br- really bring this to the next level for the midshipmen and for the nation. So, Sebastian, thanks again for coming in. We really appreciate it. No, thank you. This is fantastic. Yeah, thanks, Sebastian. And thank you, Claude. And thank you uh, to all of you who are listening. If you like the podcast, please leave feedback at the uh, conclusion of this on whatever platform you're listening to, and we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot. Rebel Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.